0: as we pay attention to your word through christ the living word we pray amen i would like to thank publicly the lectionary yes that's right the lectionary for helping shape today's sermon a lectionary is defined as a book or listing that contains a collection of scripture readings appointed for Christian or Jewish worship on a given day or occasion. Just in case you didn't know that already. Funny thing, the lectionary, a few quick facts. The origins of the lectionary are distant and obscure. Some people think that the first time Jesus preached in his hometown, he was reading from a lectionary because lectionaries existed long before any of us had heard of them. Apparently, there's a painting attributed to Rembrandt with an elderly woman reading from a lectionary. So they've been around for a long time. The lectionary has had enormous influence across the generations and around the globe. As other folks worship in other parts of the world today, they're probably looking at the same scriptures that we've had read to us. What a beautiful and powerful thing. At the same time, the lectionary is far from perfect. I was, I have to confess, a little bit scandalized to learn that the lectionary we use leaves out, according to one source, three-quarters of the Bible, And here I've been going along thinking, well, if you stick around long enough, you get most of the Bible read to you in church. I'm sorry if that is deflating, but it's true. Further, the lectionary tends to shortchange the fourth gospel, John's gospel. Uh, John's gospel shows up in the readings kind of in between others. It's not left out entirely, but it doesn't get the same attention that the other three do. But there's more. The stories of women in the Old Testament tend not to show up. They're largely left out. And if all that wasn't enough, during the Easter season, the Old Testament lessons that we enjoy most of the year are replaced for the most part by readings from the Acts of the Apostles. So I hope that's not too much of a letdown. It's, it's useful and it's helpful, but it's not perfect. It didn't arrive with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But for all the shortcomings of lectionary, it has a couple of real things to commend it. First of all, it helps preachers avoid cherry-picking. You know, the scriptures are set out, and you're pretty well encouraged to pick one of those. And uh, I'm not throwing shade on anybody, but many of us have attended churches where the, the preacher can preach on whatever they want every week. And sometimes that's okay, and other times hobby horses show up and so on a second advantage is that and this comes to our point for today the lectionary has the capacity to bring together uh, scriptures from all over the bible to bring them together in a way that is coherent and thematically makes a lot of sense and that's why I wanted to thank the lectionary one more time for helping me uh, today Let me give you an example. This may have crept up on you as it has on me, but less than three weeks or so from now, we'll be gathering for Ash Wednesday. It seems like Christmas just was behind us and then Epiphany and Groundhog Day. I guess that doesn't have the same status. And then Ash Wednesday will be be here. Can you believe it? Well, if you're... If you're not native born to Anglicanism, as I wasn't, you'll find out very soon that Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday, is a very big deal in the church calendar. And yet many of us, and again, this is true for my own story, are not familiar with the calendar and the rhythms of the church. And lectionary texts like the ones we've had today help us kind of frame our preparation for ash wednesday and all that follows to be honest often i find myself slightly unprepared for lent uh, i come to ash wednesday service and i think Ooh, already and then i have to kind of shift gears and it feels like the gears are grinding a little bit uh, how am i supposed to feel how am i supposed to be ready for this season of the church year? maybe that's true for you too And so I feel a little bit unsettled. I feel a little bit flat-footed. I ask, you know, what is my heart telling me as we enter the season of contrition and repentance? Another question that comes to mind, which I'm never ready for, is what should I give up for Lent? Should I give up anything? And if so, why? To what purpose? And more broadly, what's the right way? What's the most constructive, the most useful way, if you like, to observe the season of Lent? What is beneficial? Because it's possible to observe Lent in a way that's self-indulgent. I mentioned to the other preachers the other day that somewhere C.S. Lewis says that our hearts are so subtle that sometimes we can actually be even proud of how beautifully we repent. That's a scary thought. So for me, at least, all those are tough questions. So let me simply state that these four texts, and thanks again to the lectionary that we had read to us this morning, can help us frame frame the way we prepare for Lent, which is coming up pretty soon. So let's take a look at these four texts. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. This text helps us, first of all, to remember what we've forgotten, to remember what we've forgotten. The prophet's words in verses four and five recapitulate some of the ways that God has delivered his people over time. Not all the ways, of course, but some of them. The ways that God has rescued, the way that God has delivered his people. And in the next verses, the mood changes. And depending on how you read it, it can be that we're hearing the voice of the people asking, more or less, isn't what we're already doing enough? Isn't what we're already doing enough? And maybe just below the surface, we might hear a note of exasperation on their part. Or even, as one author pointed out, a bit of sarcasm. Isn't all we're doing enough to give back to God isn't all that we're doing enough to give back to God and it's in that context that Micah's words ring out Micah's words bring them back and bring us up to what to bring us back to what God truly desires he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly With your God. And so the reading from the prophet invites us, if you like, to a season for remembering what we've forgotten. Let's move on to the second text. You read part of Psalm 37. This psalm can be taken as a response to someone or some group of people who might be wondering if all their faithfulness, all their piety, all their devotion is worth it after all. We might see implied behind this psalm signs of envy, signs of disenchantment, even of resentment. And if we've ever felt those feelings, we know that that's not a a good or a happy place to be. Perhaps people are asking as many of us have asked from time to time are things really seriously going to work out for those who remain faithful to the ways of God even when all the outward indications suggest the opposite and it's in that against that backdrop that we hear these words of the psalm delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The Psalm invites us to a season for remembering and reclaiming hope and confidence, for reclaiming hope and confidence, things we all need to live. Let's move on to the third passage from our lectionary readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here we find Paul writing as a pastor to a church that is pulling itself apart. Think of it. Possibly even within one generation or a decade or two. A church that's already pulling itself apart—pulling uh, itself apart—over factions, over resentment, over concerns about status, or who is the most eloquent, and so on. People who should know better losing sight of what it is that saved them in the first place. Losing sight of what it is that saved them in the first place. And it's in that context that Paul writes, for remember or consider your calling. Not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth. Another way of saying there's not as much differentiation between you as you think. And then he goes on to say, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Well, well, That was a long time ago. We're a long ways from the early days of the Church of Corinth. But I suppose it's possible for this spirit of dissent and differentiation, discord, to creep into any church. A week from now, God willing, we'll all be back from the men's retreat, those of us who have attended, one of the highlights of the year. Now, full disclosure. I had lived in Minnesota for, I think, seven years before I ever attended the, the men's retreat. Uh, shame on me. Uh, I, I'm not really sure why I didn't go, but uh, I was sure glad when I did. And I, I enthusiastically recommend it to, to others. And when I urge people to attend, I have three standard reasons. First of all, the natural setting. I love how rugged and wild it is on the North Shore, even though I discovered it later than I should have. So, first of all, the setting is without equal. Second, I appreciate the fact that the program is so light L uh, I T E light. It's not my idea of a good time to go away for a weekend and have everything structured, you know, and wander around with a binder going from one session to the next. Each to his own, but that's not my ideal. And so there's a, there's a program, and it's great, but there's lots of time to just hang around and enjoy one another's company and enjoy the, <clears throat> the beautiful setting. And the third reason I give is it's impossible to have a boring conversation because there's so many interesting people with so many diverse interests, and those are all lovely and wonderful and commendable things. And Our church, thank God, <clears throat> has great people and great worship and lots of variety and thoughtful conversations. All of those are great, and they're things that we ought to celebrate. But none of that or any other human attribute is what saves us or what brings us together. None of that or any other human attribute is what saves us, what brings us together. Because of him, as Paul says, because of him, we are in Christ Jesus. And so the season of Lent Maybe a time to be regrounded. Is that even a word? I guess it is now. Regrounded in the gospel and what the gospel does for us and in us and through us. Fourth passage our text from Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount that Jacques read for us. As you know, the Sermon on the Mount lays out a whole new way to live a complete rearranging of what matters, of what makes people matter, an inversion of what we all strive for, with a premium on service rather than status, service rather than status. C.S. Lewis said, Wait, am I allowed two C.S. Lewis quotes in one sermon? Of course I am. This is an Anglican church. There's no limit. C.S. Lewis is supposed to have said, No one knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. No one knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. Isn't that true? Isn't that in itself a really good point of departure as we look ahead to the season of Lent. Because we need something from beyond ourselves. The humility and the contrition and the focus on repentance that Lent calls me to and calls us all to, all of those things have value not so much as ends to themselves, but for the way they bring our hearts in line or back in line with God, and back in line with his work of salvation in this world. All the focus during Lent on searching our hearts, and contrition, and mending our ways, they have value not so much as ends in themselves, but in what they bring us to, and the mercy of God. Another prophet from Micah's time Isaiah put it this way. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so again, to remember what we've forgotten, to reclaim our confidence and our hope, to be regrounded in the gospel, and to go on being remade in the way of Jesus. May God be honored, and may we be renewed as we draw closer to him in these days ahead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh man.